Well, let's uh, begin with Scripture. Hosea, please, chapter 6 and verse 7. But like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant. There they have dealt treacherously against me. And then, if you will, in the back of the hymnal, chapter 7 of God's covenant with man. Chapter 7, page 923, section 1. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience unto him as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath been pleased to express by way of covenant. Number two. The first covenant being, excuse me, the first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and in him to his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. Section three, man by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second, commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. Section 4. This covenant of grace is frequently set forth in Scripture by the name of testament in reference to the death of Jesus Christ, the testator, and to the everlasting inheritance with all things belonging to it therein bequeathed. Section 5. This covenant was differently administered in the time of the law and in the time of the gospel. Under the law, it was administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the paschal lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all four signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient and efficacious through the operation of the Spirit, to instruct and build up the elect in faith in the promised Messiah, by whom they had full remission of sins and eternal salvation, and is called the Old Testament. Number six, under the gospel, when Christ, the substance, was exhibited, the ordinances in which this covenant is dispensed are the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which, though fewer in number and administered with more simplicity and less outward glory, yet in them it held, oh, excuse me, it is held forth in more fullness, evidence, and spiritual efficacy to all nations, both Jews and Gentiles, and is called the New Testament. There are not, therefore, two covenants of grace, 
differing in substance, but one and the same under various dispensations. Amen. So I want to talk tonight a little bit about covenant theology. I'm going to begin kind of with my own thoughts and notes, and then I'm going to move over to um, the systematic theology of Ligon Duncan, who has done a lot of work in his career on this subject. I'm, so I'm going to be relying on uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan, who uh, formerly, well, he still is professor of systematic theology at RTS uh, in Jackson, but now is also serving as chancellor of all the campuses uh, of RTS. <clears throat> so a little bit about covenant theology. Why is covenant theology important? What is it? Um, First of all, let me say this. First of all, covenant theology is a way of understanding God's relationship to his people. The, as, as the Westminster Confession that we just read says, that we would not know uh, of God in the way that we should unless God was to condescend to us. And that God commonly does this by way of making a formal relationship with his people. And this is by way of covenant, that God makes an agreement. Now, you kids, in your children's catechism, you remember, you know, what is a covenant? A covenant is an agreement between two or more persons. Well, this is true um, within covenant theology. God is making a covenant with us. Now, the idea of covenant is not unique to the Bible alone. Um, It is found even two millennia B.C., in uh, the ancient Near East documents that we have. So people used to make covenants with one another. Kings would make covenants with the people. Um, So this idea was familiar even as the Bible was first beginning to be written. Uh, But it is primarily to be understood in the Bible in the way that God deals with us. It it also, I would say this, it, it is helpful for us to understand covenant theology and the covenants because I think it really helps you understand the Bible. Um, The reason we study systematic theology, one of the reasons, is so that we better understand the Bible. Um, What systematic theology tries to do is try to put together all the data that we find in Scripture and put it in some kind of uh, manageable and comprehensible way of understanding how God is dealing with us. And I think... One of the things that I appreciate about covenant theology, I think, is it, it shows the unity of the scriptures from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And while it maintains the unity of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation 22, there is within that unity a development so that it's not a stagnant unity. It's not a flat plane of unity. But as we move from the Old Testament into the New, there is this progression uh, there is this development, and I've used the illustration, children, you may remember, of a flower. That The flower often begins as a stem and leaves, and then the blossom comes later. And I think the same is true as God unveils his work of redemption for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to talk a little bit here about, uh, first of all, the covenant um, and we're going to talk about the covenant of works and also uh, the covenant of grace. Now, um, notice our text here. Let's start there, Hosea chapter 6 and verse 7. I wanted to start, you could have started in a lot of different places. I hope you saw in Psalm 89 and Psalm 106 when we sang them, the word covenant was popping out uh, in those psalms. 
There are a lot of places we could talk about this and begin. But the reason I like to start here is for this reason, because I think it, it shows that from the very beginning, when God entered into our relationship with Adam, it was by way of a covenant. The reason I start here and not in Genesis is because the word covenant does not appear in the first three chapters of Genesis, but the idea does. And that's why I'm starting here with Hosea, is because Hosea specifically interprets the first three chapters of God and Adam as a covenant. Notice that our text here says, but like Adam or men, they have transgressed the covenant here. There they have dealt treacherously against me. That what I think Hosea here is saying is he said, from the very beginning, man has dealt treacherously with God and they have broken the covenant. And for our purposes, what I want you to understand here is it says, therefore, the relationship, I think from the very beginning of time with man, the beginning of history, I should say, you, you have this relationship defined as a covenant. So, as I said, the, the concept of a covenant is not exclusive to the Bible. There were covenants that we can find in uh, ancient Near Eastern history um, outside of the Bible. But we find it in the Bible as well. For example, in Genesis chapter 26, you remember how Isaac was having disagreements with his neighbors over the wells. He would dig a well, and then the neighbors would say, that's not yours, that's our well. And Isaac would move, and he did it, and it happened again until finally he came to Rehoboth, and he, he uh, built a well, and there was peace. But Isaac would make an agreement with these other nations here. Now, we find also what was known as a suzerain vassal treaty. And basically, it was a king who was saying to the people, if you will tithe of your produce to me and give your sons unto me in the military, I will offer you protection. Uh, in Joshua chapter 9 and 10, we see a covenant that Joshua makes with the Gibeonites. Now, he made it because the Gibeonites were deceitful, but nevertheless, once that covenant was established, they had to honor that covenant. In fact, when Saul, later in the history of Israel, uh, begins to disobey that covenant and try to wipe out the Gibeonites, remember a curse came on, on the house of Saul and the house of Israel. There was a famine in the land, and it was because Saul had violated that covenant. So covenants are made <clears throat> between people. They're made between nations. Um, and, um, and so God enters into a relationship with us. Now, modern evangelicalism loves that word relationship. They love to talk about relationship, God, that, that Christianity is a relationship with God. And I do not theologically disagree with that. I would just argue, however, that that relationship is defined by way of covenant, now, as I said, I think a week or so ago, at least in Sunday school, I can't remember what I say in the pulpit and what I say in Sunday school class. And so forgive me if only some of you remember this. But we talked about the word federal. Um, the word federal is, it basically means covenant, a federal government. We call it the federal government because its name comes from uh, the, the formation of the, the government, the central government to which the states entered into a covenant 
at least in theory. <laughs> I think uh, things have been turned on their heads with regard to this federal government. But in, in theory, the states were sovereign, and the states came together, and they said, we will each cede to this central authority a certain amount of power. It will be, and, and that power will be delegated and outlined specifically in the Constitution, and that which we do not delegate specifically in the Constitution is reserved for the states. That was the idea. Uh, like I said, now it's reversed, and the states get the leftovers, and the states get whatever the federal government says is okay for the states to have. But this is not a history class. <laughs> but, but that's why we call it the federal government. Okay, that is a, It is a covenantal government there. Now, there are, um, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but there are different uh, words um, in the Greek, which we translate uh, into the English word covenant. But the term, whichever Greek words are used, uh, sometimes of covenant or testament, the term covenant is found around 300 times in the Bible. In the Old Testament, according to uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan, around 280 to 290 times and 30 times in the New Testament. So that's a, a fair amount of times that the term covenant is specifically used. Now, like I said, that many times the idea is there even if the word is not. I would argue that what we see in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 is God entering into a covenant with Adam in the garden even though the word is not used there. I think Hosea here in chapter 6 is telling us that that is what is indeed there. Now, what is this covenant? It is a bond. Now, usually within the covenant, there is an oath, all right? An oath, meaning that there is a bound vow or commitment whereby the parties come to some kind of agreement. In covenants, such as, for example, if you looked at Exodus chapter 24, the bond was usually established with the blood of, for example, an animal. So in Exodus chapter 24, in verse 1, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and you shall worship at a distance. Moses alone, however, shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people come up with him. Then Moses came and recounted to all the people the words of the Lord and all the ordinances, and all the people answered with one voice, all the words which the Lord has spoken we will do. There's the commitment, right? There's the oath. We will obey the word of God, says the people of God. Say the people of God. So Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Then he arose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain with 12 pillars for the 12 tribes of Israel. He sent young men of the sons of Israel, and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as peace offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins, and the other half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing, that is the, the words that God gave to the people, called the Book of the Covenant, and read it in the hearing of the people, and they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. 
And then listen closely here to verse 8. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So what do you find here? You find the two parties coming together through their representatives, and they meet with God, and they swear to God, we will obey the Lord. We will do all that he says. And the Lord will enter into this relationship. He says, I will be your God. You will be my people. You will obey me. We say we will obey. And then what do you have? You have the sacrifices. And the blood is taken. Some of the blood is taken, and it's sprinkled on the altar, and some of the blood was sprinkled on the people. And so the bond and the commitment is established here with the sacrifice. Now, you can see, I think, where this is going, don't you? Because what is this all pointing to? Ultimately, it is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. What Jesus does on the cross is he takes the place of those animals. Because the animal of a blood, the blood of an animal, of the goat, the bull, the, the heifer, cannot cleanse us truly. Now, as we read here in the Old Testament, the administration of the covenant by way of animal sacrifices, however, was efficacious because it pointed to Christ. So that it is a part of the covenant of grace. It is not a different covenant in substance. It is the same covenant as the covenant that we are in. It is just under a different administration. Does everybody see that? Is anybody confused? Don't be ashamed. I'll say it again. I'll repeat it in a different way if I can. We, since the time of Adam's fall, once Adam broke the covenant of works in the garden by disobeying, what was God to do? Adam could never be restored to a relationship with him, with God, uh, in himself. One, he had fallen into sin. He no longer had the capability of obeying God. Two, what are you going to do about the previous violation? It needs to be paid for. And how is that going to be done by a sinner? So it became necessary that God establish, after the covenant of works was broken, another covenant, which we commonly call the covenant of grace, which begins not in the New Testament. The covenant of grace begins in the Old Testament, and it begins in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. This is why theologians call this the Evangel, the the Evangelium. This is the... The Proto-Evangelium is the, the first preaching of the gospel in this new covenant. But it was administered differently in the Old Testament. Why? Because the people of God were not ready for the fullness of the new covenant um, in Jesus Christ. Because, to put it in the words of Paul and also the author of Hebrews, there was a time of immaturity in the Old Covenant. The, the, the nation of Israel were as children, comparatively. And so they had to be, just like with your kids when they were little, or your kids who are little, you know, you're not breaking out Burkhoff, right? And, and, you know, the Garnets aren't reading Burkhoff to Billy, right? 
What are we doing? We're, we're reading picture books to, to our young kids. You know, we're not beginning with Pilgrim's Progress. We're, we're beginning with The Dangerous Journey, right? It has pictures in it. It's easier to understand than what Bunyan wrote. And so it was in the Bible. We begin with pictures. We begin with bulls and goats and heifers because that's easier to understand than the eternal son becoming incarnate and laying down his life for his people. So until the time of maturity, the people of God had to walk in this covenant of grace under a different administration. Types, signs, paschal lambs, circumcision, all these complex and ornate ordinances. I mean, it's complicated, isn't it? When you read the book of Leviticus, all that you have to learn, all that you have to know, all that the priests have to know. Hey, listen, I'm glad I'm not in the Old Covenant. (laughs) That's a lot to go through on Sunday and make sure you did it right. Now, remember, this is a what kind of sacrifice? You know, we got to do this. It's different than this sacrifice. The whole burnt offering is different than the peace offering. And Sometimes the priest did this for this offering. Sometimes they did that for that offering. It's very complicated. It's very elaborate. That's why the high priest wore a very ornate garment because it was teaching the people through that. Comparatively, in the New Testament, the, the covenant of grace is very simple. It's not very complicated. You get together, you say some prayers, you read the word, You preach, eat some bread, drink some wine in remembrance of Christ, and you go home. I mean, it's it's supposed to be simple, but it's it's of greater efficacy. There's more power. This is the age of the outpouring of the Spirit. Christ has risen. We don't need all the pictures anymore that you needed in the Old Testament. This is why I think the high church gets it wrong. The high church is often trying to imitate the Old Covenant, and, and that I think is a mistake. Um, They're not appreciating the redemptive development that takes place. And in that development, there is greater simplicity. And in in that development, now there's greater reliance upon the Spirit. And and we don't need all the outward adornments. Um, We don't need the pictures. We don't need the icons. We don't need the priests doing this and that, you know. Um, It's not supposed to be complicated like it was at the temple. The temple has been fulfilled in Jesus. Now we worship in spirit and truth. Um, You know, in the old covenant, you had to go to the temple three times a year. You were required by law to go to the temple. You can't do that now. The the temple comes to the people. and, And the temple is Christ. And Christ comes to the people by way of his word through the spirit. In the Amazon jungle, in Asia in the United States, in Africa, Europe, wherever two or more are gathered in the name of Jesus Christ. And this is the point that Jesus was making with the woman uh, in John chapter 4 at the well. He said, you know, look, don't worry about which mountain you worship at any longer. The day is coming. It doesn't matter. We're not going to go through this complicated stuff soon. Because I am the temple. I am. What was the temple? The temple was where the name of God dwelt. And here is Jesus, God himself in the flesh. 
He's fulfilling the temple. Once he completes his earthly ministry, the temple is going to be gone in a few decades. Jesus told us in Matthew 24, it's going to be wiped out. Not one stone will be left on another. Remember, the disciples are going, look how lovely this temple is. It's beautiful. It's great. It's magnificent. It's ornate. And Jesus said, yeah, it's about to be destroyed. And I love how they wait until they get up to the Mount of Olives till they say, uh, question. <laughs> you know, they just, I think they were stunned. And there must have been a silent walk up the hill <laughs> until they got alone with Jesus. So the covenant um, is the same in substance as it was in the days of Moses, as it is in the days of Christ. But, it, but, but now we have a better administration in the new covenant. Now, the new covenant, you have to understand, is under the umbrella of the covenant of grace. This is the way I tend to think of it. If it's helpful for you, great. If it doesn't help you, forget about it. Because this is Boyd Miller's illustration. He didn't get it from some you know, well-known theologian. But I tend to think of the, the covenant of grace as like an umbrella. And you put the umbrella up, and the covenant of grace just gives you all this protection. You go to the beach, you know, and you put up this big umbrella, and you and a couple of members of your family can all get into the shade, right? But what do you have under that umbrella? You've got all these kind of spokes, don't you, that lead to the center of the umbrella. When you push it up, and the spokes, you know, kind of go out. And... I say that because I think of the covenant of grace as being the overarching tent. And underneath that, you have all these spokes, and those are the covenants with maybe a smaller C. The covenant that God made with Noah. The covenant that God made with Abraham. The covenant that God made uh, with Moses, the covenant that God made with David, all these little covenants or dispensations. Notice it says dispensations. That's okay to say the word dispensation, okay? So it doesn't make you a dispensationalist. The, the Westminster Divines use the word dispensation, okay? It's right there in the last word of that chapter 7. All those little covenants, they are all part of the development of the covenant of grace until you get to Jesus, and you have the new covenant. But it's still all, all the way from Noah to Christ. This is all under that big umbrella of the covenant of grace, the most significant of those being, of course, Jesus' covenant. We're in the upper room. He said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. This too is my blood in this cup. Drink ye all of it. The the blood of the goats and the bulls and the calves and the circumcision and all that is going away. The covenant of grace is about to be administered in this New Testament, in this new covenant. And this will be the final testament uh, until I come again and consummate it. So, you have the oath, you have the commitment, you have the agreement of the parties, you have the sacrifice which again points to Jesus Christ, and yet the eating of the meal. And what do we have ourselves? Even in the new covenant, what do we have? We have the promise of God, don't we? That, that all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be saved. 
and that we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, but also as Lord. We keep his commandments out of an evangelical faith. We, not for our justification's sake, but because we are justified by faith in Christ, we then submit willingly to his commandments. And we, we obey him as Lord. So we make a commitment to Christ. Jesus will be our Lord. We will follow him. We will put our hand to the plow. We won't look back. We will build our houses on this foundation of Christ. We will not build them on sinking sand. We make that commitment as a people. You, uh, boys and girls, next Sunday, you guys are going to be publicly making that commitment for yourself as well. That's part of what you're doing. You are saying, I'm pledging to be the Lord's from here on out. For the rest of my life, no matter what may come, no matter what hardships or persecutions I may have to endure for his name's sake, I am making this commitment to Jesus Christ. And that by God's grace, I will stay faithful to that commitment. What is the, how is that commitment established? It is established by what Jesus did on the cross. We acknowledge that this covenant is ratified by Christ. Jesus, who obeyed all of God's laws perfectly, has fulfilled the obligations of the covenant in himself, and then has died as a consequence for our violations of that covenant. So that as we look to Christ by faith, that sacrifice of Christ is applied to us. And then what do you have? The eating of the meal. And Where do you think that is fulfilled? Well, it's fulfilled in the Lord's table, isn't it? The Lord's Supper, I think, is far more important than many churches realize. We are, we are sitting down together as a church, and we are eating together of the sacrifice. You realize that in the old administration, that under certain sacrifices, the priests would partake of part of that offering. The priests had the right not in all offerings, but in many of the sacrifices, they had the right to partake themselves. Now, what does the New Testament say? The New Testament says, you now are the priest. Christ is the high priest. You are a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? It means you have the right to the table. You have the right to the altar. And so when we come, we're not re-sacrificing Christ here, but we are commemorating the one and only sacrifice of Christ. And we are eating here as a covenant meal that we are the children of God. We are the priests of God, partaking of the one sacrifice. And that Christ is in us, just as that food and drink go in us physically. Christ is spiritually in us. And we are in Christ. We are in union with Christ, who is both the mediator of the covenant and he is the sacrifice of the covenant. Now, this is a covenant that is sovereignly administered. There's no bargaining here. God lays down his ordinances. Exodus chapter 20. Uh, these are called the Ten Commandments, not the Ten Suggestions. These are the terms of the covenant. And I wish the church today would take those terms seriously. Uh, you've heard me enough talk about the fourth commandment is, is a forgotten commandment. 
It's like we have nine of them today. I'm pausing here because I've got way more material than time. Let me address this issue. Ligon Duncan raises this question. He says, what kind of theology is covenant theology? And uh, Dr. Duncan says, covenant theology is a blend of biblical theology and systematic theology. Biblical theology is the study of Scripture from the perspective of redemptive history. It is thematic. So, for example... I'll give you an exa- illustration. Uh, you could take you could take a lot of different themes, okay? In in the Bible, you could take the theme of light and and see how God uses that theme through from the beginning when God said, "Let there be light," all the way to Jesus saying, "I am the light of the world." You could take the theme of the garden, for example. Um, that 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 God, the garden is the temple, and God comes into His temple, and you have then what do you have once that man is expelled from the temple? What do you have? You have God coming down again, and bringing the temple down to the people and allowing through the sacrifice the people to draw near to God through the temple. The temple leads us to Christ. Christ is the temple. This is my body. Tear down this temple. I'll rebuild it in three days. And, and, and so that you finish with what? You see that the, the temple, when you get to Revelation 21, we see the, the temple of God coming down, God with us. We are the temple. We are the living stone, says Peter. So that, that's, that's, that's what's known as biblical theology. Okay, does everybody see that? You're taking themes and you're kind of running them from the Old Testament to the end of the Bible here. Um, so it, it tends to be thematic. You, you could look at the holiness of God, the nearness of God, or all kinds of themes. Systematic theology is the synthesizing of all biblical revelation into an entire system. Your catechism is a little, tiny, systematic theology, okay? In case you're overwhelmed by the idea, the thought of studying systematic theology, know that your catechism is a little, micro, systematic theology. Um, It is taking the revelation of the scriptures and saying, here, here's a little system of it. We think this is what the most important stuff revealed in the Bible So learn these 107 questions and answers. And this will give you the basic foundations here. It borrows from biblical theology, exegetical theology, historical theology, pastoral theology, and it just brings it all together. Now, what Duncan says here is this. Covenant theology as systematic theology. Um, Covenant theology helps us to relate systematically in this twofold Adamic theme. We talked about this last Sunday. The first and the second Adam, right? The first and the last Adam. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 5. You have the covenant of works in the first Adam, and that is a broken covenant. That's the covenant to which we are all born under by nature. We are all under the Adamic covenant. We are all under the judgment and wrath and curse of God by nature. But God in his mercy has made another covenant in the second Adam, in Jesus Christ, and all who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ shall be delivered from the curse of the first broken covenant here. And so um, Adam, just as he was our federal head in the garden, Christ is our federal head in the church, and we are members of his body. 
Well, I'm going to have to pray and see what we're going to do next week here. Let's stop there. I think that's a